Hello. Hi. Welcome to Cup of Taboo, where I discuss all things considered taboo. Anything that you can't discuss with your conservative friends and parents, I'm here for it. I'm your host, Tyler, and today I will be talking about Edmund Kemper. If you watched Mindhunter, you will know exactly who I'm talking about. He is also known as the co-ed killer and is one of the most disgusting and terrifying serial killers to have existed. So I hope you're ready for your weekly dose of strange, dark and terrible, served in your cup of taboo. I am recording in the morning, so if I sound half asleep, it's because I am, just so you know. I also just wanted to quickly mention the performance by Cameron Britton on Mindhunter. It was phenomenal. Chef's kiss. The makeup, spectacular. Performance, spectacular. Everything, wunderbar. They made him look so much like the real deal, it is scary. He was even nominated for a few awards for it, one of which was an Emmy. I mean, he was so good. And then the guy went on to play one of my favorite characters in Umbrella Academy. So you can say I'm a fan. I'm done fangirling over this amazing talent uh, actor, talented actor. But uh, so let's get on to the episode about the actual real monster. Also, this was requested by a dear friend of mine. So shout out to you, Connie Bear. Warning. The following podcast contains content that some listeners might find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. But seriously, this one is quite disturbing, so if you get triggered easily, please note, this is your warning now. There will be death, there will be necrophilia, there is a whole bunch of really bad things. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18, 1948 to Clarnell Strandberg Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper Jr. He was born in Burbank, California, and he was the middle child, which eh, maybe explains something. Uh, he's also a Sagittarius, if that means anything. I don't know. Let me know. Does that mean something? According to a study, there are four signs, star signs, that uh, would account for 40% of serial killers. <laughs> so that's being Scorpio, Cancer, Sagittarius, and Pisces. Hmm. <laughs> Can't say I'm shocked. <laughs> Kidding. The campers moved around a bit when Ed was young, and his parents had a very rocky relationship. They would fight all the time, and when Ed was nine, they got a divorce. So that was in 1957, and it was only finalized in 1961. So this was in his, you know, formative years, so maybe this played a part in what he later became. Even though I was around the same age when my parents got divorced, I'm just sorry, I didn't, I, I don't murder people. I don't cut their heads off. Do things with him. Mm-mm. I just have a really dark sense of humor. <laughs> but that's besides the point. So when their relationship started to get rocky, Ed Jr., Edmund's dad, would he would rather go work at the atomic bomb testing sites than be at home. And I think that this sort of had a massive impact on how Edmund, the killer, saw relationships, conflict resolution, and woman. Ed's father was quoted as saying, in quotes, Suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. About living with Clarnell. So that's saying something. She sounds rough. 
His mother, after the divorce, hated men and she would take it out on Ed by, you know, treating him really badly and just in he was a man in her life and he she I think saw her father his father in him and obviously took it out on him she did get remarried and divorced and she had boyfriends but nobody really stuck around so Ed was living with her and his two sisters but it didn't go so well his mother actually made him sleep in the basement because she said that she was afraid that Ed might try to do something to his sisters like sexually assault them now imagine your mother saying something about that, like that about you First of all, it must affect you terribly. Secondly, there must be a reason she's saying something like that, right? Like, your mom won't just go around saying, like, I'm scared that you do this, unless she literally feels it. Like, maybe you're already creepy and she just knows it. Mother's intuition? I don't know. But to be fair, his mother was an alcoholic. They also believed that she had a men like, mental health problems. So, I... Uh, Double-edged sword. I don't know. Edmund was a very large human being. His parents were also both very large and it just ran through their blood. So as an adult, he stands at six foot nine and weighs around 250 pounds. That's two meters and five centimeters tall and 113 kilograms for the metric users out there like me. He is a giant of a man, but he was also a giant of a child. This led to him being teased a lot and it also led to a lot of people thinking that he was older than what he actually was. He was driving a car by the age of 10. So that's how that's how large he was. He was in desperate need for that fatherly connection, but he couldn't seem to connect with any of his mother's husbands or boyfriends after his father left. So he turned to idolizing celebrities and fictional characters like the cowboys in the stories and the movies and and cops and that's who he idolized. So when he was a child, uh, before his parents got divorced, they had a few farm animals and he loved them as pets, but they weren't there to be pets. So his father would cut the heads of chickens and make Ed watch, which obviously disturbed him, and then they were forced to eat the chickens for dinner. So that, I think, maybe played a little bit of a thing on Ed. That, I think, was something that stuck in his head. And then also, when he was younger, he went to a magic show in, I think it was New York, where they had this little show where they had a fake guillotine and they would put somebody in and they would drop the blade, but the person's head wouldn't cut, like be cut. There would be a, a potato or an apple that would then get sliced in half instead and everyone would be like, oh! So when he went to go watch, there was a very pretty teenage girl that went up on stage and they did the whole spiel and Ed said, in, in later interviews that he couldn't stop watching it because he knew that she wouldn't get decapitated but he was so interested to see if it might happen. So this may have been something that stuck with him as he grew up because you know, he, you'll see later he's a little too into the whole decapitating thing. Um, and also, I mean, one of the things that he did when he was a child is that his sister accidentally broke one of his toys. So he decided he was going to get revenge on her. So he stormed into her room and he pulled the head off her Barbie. And, you know, he realized that he can just pop it back on. So instead of just leaving it there, he went a step further and he cut off the Barbie's hands and obviously also pulled the, pulled the head off. They also used to play the sick game called Gas Chamber, which he would force his sisters into, where he would get them to tie him to a chair, and he would then shake and writhe uncontrollably until he, quote, died to pay for his sins. So all that being said, sure, he was very weird, very odd, weren't we all? Uh, he was also said to be quite intelligent, and 
Apparently, he enjoyed making jokes and having fun, and he was generally seen as somewhat happy. When he was around 11 years old, he started with the animal murders. A serial killer in the making. If, if your child is killing cats or dogs or animals at a young age for fun, please take them to a psychiatrist or a doctor or someone because it is not a good sign. Let's just put it that way. So when he was around 11 years old, he buried one of the family cats alive and then he dug it out and cut off its head, which he stuck on a pole like a trophy. Creepy. That's some, what's, what was that book where the kids get stuck on an island uh, with a conch shell? Flip man, I can't think of what it's called. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. The other cat, a few years later, he cut up with a machete and dismembered it. He placed its head on a platter. And I think that this was just some terrible foreshadowing for what was to come. And an interesting fact that I heard while doing my research, one of the psychologists said that with a lot of serial killers, they kill cats at a young age, but especially the sexual serial killers, because the cat is perceived as a feminine symbol. And generally, these sexual serial killers have a problem with women. And Ed, being one of those, he had an obvious problem with women because of his strained relationship with his mother. So that's some stuff that, that could be delved deep into, but I am not a psychologist and I don't know what else to say about it. So as a teenager, Ed tried to go live with his father and his father's new wife, but the new wife felt very uncomfortable with Ed because he was so big and just generally creepy. He would just stare at her. And so he couldn't speak to girls. He couldn't, he didn't know how. He didn't know what to say. He, he was very awkward. And they then shipped him off to live with his paternal grandparents. So when he was there, his father actually changed his number, didn't leave a forwarding number for Ed and, and moved. So this was after his mother had told him about the cats that they found and I think that completely freaked his father and his new wife out so they were like ah mm -mm, ain't nobody got time for that at this point Ed then felt completely abandoned and he started to retreat into himself allowing his dark thoughts and fantasies to take over he often mentioned wanting to kill his mother from a very young age he lived with his grandparents Maud and Edmund Kemper senior from the age of 14 years old on their farm in North Folk California and he attended Sierra Joint Union High School where he behaved and he got decent grades. He was a very big boy, like I said, so people did tease him, but he just, he stuck to his lane and he just carried on. He retreated into himself. He was one of the quiet kids that would just imagine things. So at the farm, he was given a .22 caliber rifle and he was intent on killing every small creature that crossed his path. So this really bothered his granny. Uh, which I understand. So she took the rifle away from him, which infuriated Ed. She hid the rifle where Ed couldn't find it, but Ed, through snooping, found another gun stashed in a drawer. He would also stand and just stare at his grandmother, which made her super uncomfortable. So she eventually started carrying the smaller handgun around with her whenever she left the house because, you know, she didn't want to leave him alone with it. Understandably. One holiday, Ed went to spend it with his mother and it was not a good time. He came back and she was too strict with him. She was mean and controlling. And then when he got back to the farm with his grandparents, his grandmother was then strict, mean, controlling, and he couldn't stand it. He was like, women are all mean to me and I don't know why. At this point, he started plotting ways that he could kill his grandmother. And on the 27th of August, 1964, he did just that. While his grandmother was typing a new story on her typewriter, Ed, 
who had now been given his .22 shotgun back, went outside to go shoot some critters. And when he turned back and looked at her through the screen door, he was like, hmm. Her back was towards him, and he just did it. He shot her in the back of the head. He then fired the gun two more times into her back, just to make sure. He went into the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and stabbed her in her back a few more times, just for good measure. He dumped her body in the bedroom, and he waited for his grandfather to arrive home. When his grandfather did arrive home from, I'm assuming it was a shopping trip, he was busy getting bags out of his truck, so Ed went behind him, greeted him, and shot him in the back of the head as well. He said he did it because he didn't want to cause too much sadness and stress for his grandfather, you know, in in seeing that he had killed his grandmother. I'm sure, I'm I'm sure that's exactly why you did it. He just had bloodlust. Bloodlust, I tell you. He then, you know, he didn't know what to do. So he plotted that he was going to sit in the house and wait for the cops. And he was going to have a shootout. And he was, um, a, you know, typical movie scene. But instead, he called his mother. And he told her what he had done. The mother that he hated. The one that he wanted to kill. He called her because that was what he, all he knew what to do. It often happens that people have that people who have an abusive parent, they hate them, but they also develop some other kind of unhealthy dependency on that parent, whether it be to always try to impress or, or they always need them when they are in an emotional turmoil, which is interesting because he, he claims that his mother was so abusive, yet she was the first person that he called. His mom told him that she, she was going to call the cops and they were going to come to the place so he also called the cops just to make sure that they were coming and they arrived and they found 15 year old 15 year old Edmund Kemper at the farmhouse and when they asked why he did it his response was in quotes I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma which is terrifying so they sent him through the juvenile court system and on the 6th of December 1964 he was placed in Atascadero State Hospital for the criminally insane they diagnosed him with schizophrenia like they did to everyone at that time who murdered anybody who, or who did anything slightly out of the norm. And um, they then sent him to this, this institution, which was not for youths. This was a, they were grown men and most were hardened criminals. There were around 1,600 inmates, of which a few dozen were murderers and over 800 were sex offenders. Some think Ed was placed here because of his size. Uh, something that the judge just really d- was like, screw you, man, you killed your grandparents. They were looking after you. Like, what? The- we're sending you to this bad place. But his size actually helped him to survive in there because nobody messed with him because he was so big. So he was given many tests by the doctors and psychologists and he loved it. This was his time to shine. He could talk to people. He could, you know, they, they were testing him. They were interested in what he had to say. And he he just enjoyed it but this this is the place that made him into even more of a monster than what he would have been he even says that they did an iq test with him and he scored 136 which is considered high and many people did not believe it because they thought he was slow you know he's he spoke very slowly he spoke very softly he looked slow because of he was big and he just didn't he just didn't look smart so they decided let's give him another IQ test and there he scored 145 so this is higher than most of the population it's basically genius evil genius they came up with a whole bunch of different mental disorders for him and he he was like cool I I enjoy this he would also hear the other inmates speaking of their terrible crimes and he learned 
He learned what the doctors wanted to hear. He learned how to manipulate his answers to make it seem as though he was improving. And he learned what not to do. He was evolving. He was actually eventually put onto the psychology team to do some work. So here he now had access to other inmates' files and when he had time he would read through them and see how they messed up and got caught. He see he would see what they did. He 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 learnt from them. Now remember he also had never had an intimate relationship. So he was reading about all these violent rapes that some of these men had committed and he was seeing that as you know he had never had a sexual experience and this is now what he was reading about sexual experiences forming this belief in his mind which very dangerous he even managed to pretend to be a reborn christian because he was like that's how you get out of get out of these things you pretend to be a reborn christian and they think you're done you're saved you're fixed and he did he managed to fool everyone Dr. William Shanberger, staff psychiatrist at the hospital, did express concerns about Ed's social life once he was on the outside, as relayed in Peter Vronsky's book, Serial Killers. In quotes, Here we have a young man, 21, 22, probably never had a date in his life, probably has the usual interests and needs to connect with women. What can you tell someone about yourself? That I murdered my grandparents and I was in a mental hospital for the last five years of my life? I can't imagine how difficult it had to be. That doesn't excuse anything. In my mind, it describes the situation. Unquote. So, now, exactly what he says. After five years in this place, you now get released. So, he was then sent to spend the rest of his juvenile term at the California Youth Authority. And at age 21, he was stamped as, boom, rehabilitated and released back into the wild. Which, also, at this time, was round about the time when Charles Manson had his cult murder those people. So, this was a time in that specific area where there was a lot of bad things going on. So, he was told not to move back in with his mother, but that's exactly what he did. Uh, some, some scientists, or sorry, some psychiatrists now say that this could have been some kind of Stockholm Syndrome, or what they call trauma bonding. Ed was looking for someone that was just as messed up as he was, and his mother fit that bill, even though she was quite obviously his trigger. So he was, you know, he wanted to stay with what he knew, and he knew that she was messed up and he was messed up, so he had no fear of, well, he had no, she couldn't judge him, if that makes sense. Her, his mother at this point was doing administrative work for a university in the area. Remember that. That comes into play a bit later. So when he was out, he stayed quiet and hidden. He got a job in the highway works department. Physically, he was great at it because he was huge and strong. Mentally, he got bored. So now he started to imagine things again. He started to picture things that he should not have been picturing. He started going into a dark place. He, so he decided he wanted to get a job where he could legally carry a weapon and dominate people. He craved authority. And I think that as such a huge hum human that was teased and belittled his whole life, that domination fantasy was incredibly strong in Ed's mind. He decided he wanted to become a cop. Or a security guard. Well, he mostly wanted to be a cop. But he did need his record to be sealed so that he could try to become this policeman which meant that he had to somehow con two psychiatrists to get it sealed, which he did. He studied something similar to criminology at a university. Well, he started studying something similar to criminology at a university. Uh, but he was sorely disappointed when he was told that he was actually too tall to be a policeman. They had minimum and maximum hearts. 
So instead, he got himself a motorcycle to try and feel more like a policeman, and he had two accidents with the bike. He broke his arm and got a concussion from a head injury, and he was paid out insurance for the bike, which he then purchased a Ford Galaxy 500 with, which strongly resembled an unmarked police car at the time. He also had it kitted out with police radio scanner and all. He decided that he was unable to make conversation with anyone that was female, and he was probably never going to get laid, so instead, he turned his mind to Rick. He decided that he wasn't going to even try talking to women. He would rather just kidnap them and rape them. But th- th- it doesn't end there. His mind then went a little bit further and he thought, oh, I'm not going to risk getting getting caught. So, you know what? Rape and then murder. Ah, yes, I've done that. I've murdered. That's fine. That's easy. In one of his quotes, he said, I decided to mix the two and have a situation of rape and murder and no witnesses and no prosecution. He just, he was like, that that, that was in his head, he, with no, nothing. He just decided, this is what I'm going to do, which is absolutely terrifying. He started making something of a kill kit that he kept in his car, so that knives, bags, gloves, and he started doing practice runs with hitchhikers to get to know how to make himself more approachable so that his actual target, young pretty students, would want to get in a car with him. He changed the way he dressed, he changed the way he talked, and he practiced. Like I said, this guy is calculated. This is things. This is where things start to get very rough, so be prepared. This, this is where his murdering technically starts. I mean, it's already started, but technically, this is where he becomes the co-ed butcher, the co-ed killer. So Kemper was around 22 years old at this point, and he started to go to a local pub called The Jury Room, where the local cops frequented. He, he befriended the cops because he was apparently a very likable person. He also knew a lot about law and crime because of, obviously, his interests in becoming a cop. And on the 7th of May, 1972, he made his first move at becoming the co-ed butcher, or the co-ed killer. He went to Berkeley campus, and there he spotted two young co-ed students. Just for anyone who's interested, co-ed students are students who go to a male and female uh, school or university, so it's the women who go to a co-ed university. The two co-ed students were hitchhiking, looking for a ride to Stanford. He pulled over, he said he was going that way, and the young ladies that he picked up were 18-year-old Marianne Pesk and 18-year-old Anita Lucesa. They were roommates at Fresno University and just felt like traveling to Stanford. Marianne was 5'1 and described as an expert skier, and she was in her high school debate team. Anita was also a tiny 5'1 and she wore gold-rimmed glasses. Marianne sat in the back seat and Anita sat in the front seat next to Ed. As he drove off, he had this clever way of making sure that no one could escape by leaving, leaning over, so he would lean over the girl, and he would make sure the door was closed properly, and there he would drop a little chapstick behind a locking mechanism so they couldn't open the door, which is exactly what he did. While he was driving, he said that Marianne in the back kept giving him dodgy looks, like she knew something was up. So he pulled out a gun, and he, he told them that he was going to have sex with him. They were obviously not impressed, and they put up a bit of a fight, and he said, okay, you know what, no, Anita, you're going in the trunk, so he tied her up and he put her in there. She was a lot milder of the two, and she was quite easy to control because I think she was so terrified. In the process, while tying her up, he accidentally brushed against her breast, and he apologized to her. He then gave up the idea of raping and then murdering and decided he would do it the other way around. He climbed into the back seat, and he started to stab Marianne in her back. But she didn't die as quickly as he had thought she would. He could not stab her in the heart because he said that her breasts threw him off. He was quoted as saying, 
I stabbed her, but she didn't fall dead. They're supposed to fall dead. They're supposed to go, oh, and fall dead. I'd seen it in the movies, right? It doesn't work that way. When you stab someone, they leak to death. End quote. He then cut her throat, which killed her. And then it was time for Anita, who must have been so terrified at that point. She had just heard her best friend get murdered, and she knew that she was next. Not wanting to go through the struggle he went through with Marianne, he used a much bigger knife on Anita, who put up a hell of a fight. He ended up actually cutting his own hand and needing three stitches from it, leaving all his blood at the scene, but this was before CSI, so that didn't help at all. Anita eventually died from blood loss, and he stuffed the two bodies into the trunk, and he left the secluded area. At that point, Ed was renting an apartment in Alameda, so he drove there. He was actually pulled over by a cop for a busted taillight on the way. Somehow, the officer did not notice all the blood in the car and on Ed, and Ed was let off with a warning because he was able to sweet-talk the cop because of how he knew them. Back at the apartment, Ed dismembered the bodies, he cleaned them, and then he had sex with the corpses and the heads of his victims. He would periodically stop to take Polaroid pictures of his work, and he, he treated the girls like the Barbie dolls that he had destroyed as a child. He robbed them of $8.28. When he was done, he placed the body parts in plastic bags and stuffed them into his closet. The next morning, he put the bags into boxes and drove them to Loma Prieta, the highest peak on Santa Cruz Mountains. He took note of where he left them so that he could, in quotes, visit his girls later, end quotes. And he did keep their heads, though. He performed sexual acts on their heads until the decay got to be too much for him. He then threw them down a ravine on a different mountain. It's disgusting. The girls' parents tried to make missing persons reports, but the police were not interested as both girls were over 18 and hitchhiking at this time was incredibly popular, so the police said they've probably gone away for a while and the parents were left unable to do anything. On the 14th of September, only four months after he had killed Marianne and Anita, Kemper came upon his next victim. She was a young 15-year-old Eurasian, so she was Asian-European girl waiting at a bus stop in Berkeley. Her name was Aiku Koo, and she was a dancer. She was a very good dancer, and in fact, she was on her way to a dance class. She had missed the bus. Unfortunately, she had missed the freaking bus. When Ed pulled up, she was hesitant, but he, you know, he also started learning. He had a very clever trick where he would glance at his watch, which would make the hitchhiker think that he would happily leave them there and also like he had places to be, giving the illusion of safety. Aiku got into his car and they started driving. Ed had the gun out pretty quickly and he told her that he was very depressed and that he wanted to kill himself, but he just needed someone there for when he did it. He then took her to a secluded area and put duct tape on her mouth. He said, that, he said in an interview that she complied, probably thinking she would get out alive if she did. He told her to jump in the back seat and she just nimbly went over the seat, which Ed could not do because he was an oaf, a giant oaf. He had to get out of the car and go around to get to the back. Somehow, he locked himself out of the car though, with his gun on the passenger seat, and he knocked on the window and got Aiku to open the door for him from the inside, which she unfortunately did and nobody can say why she did. I think that that fear response, you can't say what you're going to do at the time, and she thought that she was going to be fine. When he got into the back seat, he pinched her nose and suffocated her, but she didn't die. She awoke while he was busy raping her and started fighting. 
Ed freaked out because now he was engaging with a living body instead of a corpse. So he strangled her and he ejaculated in within 20 seconds, he said. He put her tiny body in the trunk and went for a drink with her body in the trunk. He then went to his mother and spoke to her for about an hour and a half and finally he went back to the apartment where he dismembered Aikoku's body. In some interviews he said he had sex with her dismembered corpse but there are also cases of him denying this. He said it took him just over four hours to dismember the body. He then took everything besides the head and hands to, to dispose of in the mountains and he kept the head for a few days to do, you know, disgusting things with. He did say in a few interviews that he tried eating some of her flesh but he also later denied that he said he wanted to see if cannibalism was for him you know how some people want to just see if like bdsm is for them he he was on a whole other spectrum and remember how i said he was trying to get his his juvie record sealed so at this point it, the process was still happening and he actually showed up at the psychiatrist with aikuku's head in his trunk he said he was scared that his nosy landlord would poke around while he was not at home huh messed up is that her head was in his trunk while he went to a psychiatrist to convince the psychiatrist that he was able to now like to, to convince the psychiatrist to, to seal his records to, to convince the psychiatrist that he was better i mean what it is messed up on so many levels Aiko's mother knew from the first day that something was terribly wrong she tried to report her 15 year old child missing but the cops were they were overrun with complaints like these because, like I said, hitchhiking was popular, murdering was popular at this time. It was very difficult. But she was persistent, and eventually she got pictures of Aiku everywhere. Ed found one and he kept it as a trophy. Which, what the fuck? He had to dispose of the head when it started to decay, obviously, and he threw it into a ravine just like the other two. It still has not been found. Ed's record was sealed, and he was now able to get any job anywhere, basically if he wanted to besides being a policeman of course because he was too big so now that he had his, his juvie record sealed and hidden away he was able to go and buy his own gun which he did four months later on the 8th of january it was a 0.22 caliber ruger gun i don't know what that is and on the 9th of january ed decided he would go hunting for people that is for a victim the weather was cold and rainy, which Ed described as the perfect weather because people were getting into cars and windows were misting up, and he was like, hmm, perfect. He picked up two co-ed students but decided against killing them as he was sure that people had seen them, him pick them up. So he dropped them off and the next person he picked up was a woman named Cynthia Shaw, his fourth victim. Cynthia was a 19-year-old college student. She wanted to be a school teacher or a policewoman. Kemper did the same thing with Cynthia as he did with Aiku. He picked her up, took her to a secluded place, flashed his gun, gave her some bullshit story about being suicidal and not wanting to die alone. But this time though, he convinced the poor girl to climb into his trunk, saying he wanted to say goodbye to his mother and he didn't want to give anything away. So she reluctantly climbed into his trunk and as she got into the trunk, he shot her in the head. She was dead instantly. He took the body back to his mother's house where he hid her in the closet until he knew he could safely dismember it. He had oral sex with her severed head and he seemed to really like her because when he was done with it, he buried her head in his mother's garden under a stepping stone. He placed it so that the eyes were looking up towards his room. In some interviews he said it was to keep her spirit close and in others he said it was a joke on his mother because she always wanted people to look up to her. Either way, it's messed up and gross. 
He pulled a ring off her finger as a souvenir, because he collected souvenirs, and he wrapped her body parts in plastic bags and placed them in boxes and then dumped them just next to State Route 1, 19 miles from Monterey. Some say that at this point he was asking to be noticed or caught by doing this because it was a deviation from his usual hiding of the body in a remote area where people couldn't find it. The body parts were found the next day by a highway patrol officer. Her torso was found in a lagoon in Santa Cruz a week later. Sorry, I just want to make a note. Imagine the absolute terror that this must have elicited. Walk, like Walking up to a plastic bag and finding it has two human arms inside, finding another bag with human legs and some strips of flesh, and then finding just a torso a week later. I mean, imagine how haunting that is. I've never been through anything like that because, I mean, I'm very sheltered. But imagine now this little community where they're not even aware at this point that there is a man going around being a serial killer. They, they, they're not even aware. They, they just know that a few girls have gone missing. So the pelvis and left hand were found on a beach a few days later, and the police pieced her together and determined that it was in fact Cynthia Shaw. They determined that she had been cut up with a power saw, very neatly, but she was first hacked with a knife or a sword. So this led them to believe that there may have been two killers, which is interesting. The year is now 1973, and after Ed left Cynthia's body parts scattered all over the place, people were starting to freak out, understandably. There were outcries for co-eds to stop hitchhiking. The people were begging girls to stay in their dorms after midnight, which is funny because he would pick his victims up at any time of the day. The dark doesn't make this world more dangerous for a woman. It's dangerous all of the time. People were buying guns, locks, and all other forms of defense. Some girls listened and stopped hitchhiking. Others carried on. Ed picked up a few girls, and if they started talking about the co-ed butcher, he wouldn't kill them. Because I think it scratched that little ego part of his brain, of his personality. On the 5th of February, 1973, after another argument with his mother, Ed was pissed off, and he went out looking for his next victim. Unfortunately for Rosalind Heather Thorpe, he found her. Rosalind was a 22-year-old student at the University of Santa Cruz. And at 9pm, Rosalind decided to leave campus and go back home. But she missed the bus and decided to hitch a ride. Ed saw her standing there and he pulled up to her, telling her that the, bu the last bus had come and gone. And also, just to make a note, he placed a university staff parking sticker in his windshield to give him access to the university parking lot. He got it from his mom. Um, and in the universities, they were telling students to not to only trust people with these sorts of parking stickers. Now, uh, profilers and criminologists tell you to not trust anybody at all, especially people with these stickers. But back then, you know, they didn't know things. So she got into the car and then Ed pulled off. He slowed down shortly after picking up to pick up another student, 22-year-old Alice Helen Liu. Alice was studying to become a political science teacher and she was described as someone who really loved other people. She hopped into the back seat and off they drove. This time, Ed did not waste any time with pretending to go anywhere or making up any bullshit story. He simply whipped out his gun and shot both girls at point-blank range. He stuffed their bodies in the trunk and then went to go fill his car with gas. After filling it up, he stopped his car at his mother's house and he decapitated them right there in the car in the neighborhood without a care in the world. He then left the bodies in the car and only collected Alice's body the next afternoon where he took it inside and had sex with her body, making sure to bring Rosalind's head with to watch. After he was done, he took the body parts and he sloppily dumped them in the ocean 
and surrounding hills in an area known as Devil's Slide. He did make sure to keep their personal possessions in his room though because he said he wanted to get to know the girls better and if that doesn't speak to the sick twisted person that this guy was then I don't know what does. Instead of simply talking to them and dropping them off, he felt compelled to kill them, defile their bodies and then pretend like he was getting to know them by looking at their things that he stole from them. Ten days after the girls went missing, some workers found their bodies. These workers happened to be some of Ed's co-workers at the highway works. They thought that the bodies were illegally dumped mannequins on the side of a hill. Sorry to say, but if you see a mannequin lying in the wild, it's most likely not a mannequin. However, I think the human mind just wants to believe that it cannot be anything else. I know that like, if I had to see a mannequin, I would be like, oh yeah, that's a mannequin, even if it was a human body, because I don't want to think that that's a human body lying there. This time, it was a little bit different. The cops were a little bit confused because Rosalind's body still had her underwear on. He didn't, he didn't defile her body. It was only Alice's body that he raped. So they were like, what's going on here? He also, at this point, I think was unraveling because he just chucked them there. He just chucked them and left. He didn't even try putting them in boxes. He didn't try concealing anything. He just left them. So I think at this point, maybe he was begging to be caught internally. He did say he hated doing what he did. He he absolutely despised himself, but he couldn't stop doing what he did. At this time, Ed was still going to the jury room. He was hanging out with the cops and having a good time. Here they would have discussions at large about the co-ed butcher and Ed would chime in. Nobody expected Big Ed. He even met a high school student who is unnamed and will remain anonymous and he dated her like a normal human being. They got engaged. So now at this point, he's able to talk to women. But he still is a monster. He, but he, he, you know, he was also, he was becoming undone. He was drinking heavily and he was becoming incredibly paranoid. And this entire time, his mother was like down his back for everything. Down his throat for everything. Oh, what's the right one? It doesn't matter. She would blame him for the fact that he, she couldn't get dates. Well, in actual fact, you know, it was her. <laughs> but, you know, in his head, he he blamed her, she blamed him. There was a whole bunch of blame. So then something that shot his paranoia right up there was when the police arrived at his house to confiscate a new gun that he had just purchased. So it's not clear how the cops heard about the gun or why they were going to take it from him, but they did. Like, you can imagine that, that, that how this must have, must have freaked Ed out because suddenly he's just minding his business. He already thinks that he's going to be caught for all the things that he's done. He's not getting caught. But then suddenly the cops show up because he bought a gun. I think one of the cops mentioned that the reason they went to go confiscate the gun was because there was, he has this guy, he has a sealed record, he just bought this new gun and they thought it was a little bit sketchy at the time. So, but that's besides the point. A quote from Ed goes as so. The only time people got killed was when she and I were fighting like cats and dogs. I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't vent it any other way. I think they, the co-eds, were surrogates. I was killing her, not them. I was attacking her station. I was attacking her stance in the university setting. And in saying that, he was also he also expressed that he felt sympathy for his mother. He could he could see that work was wearing her down and she was bitterly disappointed. So he had this love hate unhealthy thing with his mother. And that's where I mentioned earlier her working at the university 
he he said that that is the reason that he was picking up university students because of how the university was wearing his mother down. It's all just some weird backwards circle of things. On Good Friday, the 20th of April, 1973, a month after his last kills, Ed returned home with a lily for his mother, who was not at home. She was out partying. He sat at home and got overrun with anger. Anger that his mother was out and that he was at home alone. He finished a six-pack of beer and he still, and she was still not home by midnight. He had a nap and at about 4 a.m. he got up to find her in her bed reading a book. When he walked into her room, she sighed and said, I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk now. He meekly said no and she turned around and got comfortable to go to sleep. Ed went back to his room and simmered in anger until 5 a.m. At this point, he had worked himself up to such a state that he stormed out of his room, grabbed a claw hammer and a knife, like bashed into his mother's room where she was sleeping, and he smashed her skull in while she slept. He then cut off her head, placed it in the living room, and screamed at it for an hour. He also stood and threw darts in her face in his rage. This was it. The one time that he would get the last word in with her. Some sources say that he defiled his own mother's head and Ed stated in a later interview that he had only said that because he, he said that he said that he did it in his initial interviews. He, later on, he said he, he only said that to get shock value. He then cut out her tongue and vocal cords and he tried to destroy them in the garbage disposal. However, because they were very tough, they just kind of got spat back out, causing him to sort of like, Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> his mother got her last word. Uh, it is said that then after that, he went and had sex with her headless body. But again, he denied this much later on. But in his initial interview, he stated, in quotes, I came out of my mother's vagina and in a rage, I went back in, end quotes. After this atrocious act, Ed had another moment of thought, which is never a good thing for Ed, and he decided to call her friend Sarah Sally Harrett, who was 59 years old at the time. She didn't answer, so Ed tried a few more times with the intent of luring her over. She didn't answer again, so he frustrated, he went to the bar and he had a few beers and shots, and a few hours later he got back home. He finally reached Sarah at 5pm and she accepted his invitation. Sarah arrived at the house at about half past seven that night, and Ed told her that his mother would be down shortly, so she said that she was dead tired and asked if she could sit on the couch, but she never made it to the couch. Ed punched her in the stomach, then, like the coward he is, turned her around to avoid eye contact, got her into a chokehold, and lifted her up, which broke her neck almost instantly, and he had an orgasm while doing it. He wrapped her head in a bag, and he cut it off, then went back to the jury room for some drinks. Afterwards, he got home, exhausted, and he went to sleep in his mother's blood-soaked bed, which psychologists still to this day can't explain why he did that. In his head, if both his mother and her friend were murdered, they would not suspect him as much as if it was just his mother. He had sex with Sarah's body in true Ed style, and then, when the frenzy was done, he realized that the gig was up. The jig was up. Gig? Jig. What's the right way of saying it? There was no way that this wouldn't be linked back to him. His mother, her friend, in their house. Mm. He did try to escape. He took Sarah's car and he fled. Before leaving, he left a note for the cops that said, 
Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just lack of time. Got things to do. Approximately 5.15am Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible butcher. It was quick, asleep, no pain, the way I wanted it. Ed was on the run for three days. He didn't sleep at all in that time. He just fueled himself with caffeine and that stuff. Eventually, though, on the 24th of April, 1973, Ed, who was now only 24 years old, gave up. After driving 1,500 miles, he pulled over in Pueblo, Pueblo, Colorado, and he found a payphone. He called the Santa Cruz Police Department, and he told the person on the other side that he had killed his mother and her friend, as well as the six co-eds. This was 4 a.m., so the officer on the line was like, ah, this is a prank. He told Ed that the lieutenant would only be back in the office at 9 a.m. and that Ed should call back. Frustrated, Ed used the officer's name because he recognized his voice from the bar and told him to wake the lieutenant up. The officer refused, so Ed, being ever so patient, waited and hours later called again. Again, the officer on the line thought it was a prank call. Crank call? Prank call. Uh. And he actually hung up on him, but Ed was now determined. He wanted to go back home and he wanted to be put back into an institution where he had some of the best times of his life. So he called again and he started shouting that he was the co-ed killer and that he, then he gave details that you know people wouldn't know. So the officers finally started taking him seriously and then they accidentally hung up on him while trying to get a trace on the call. He called them back, got them to call him because he was now running out of coins for the phone. Eventually, he told them to get Sergeant Alufi to go to the house and have a look for himself. This was the guy who confiscated the gun from him originally. So he went, so Sergeant Alufi went to the Kemper household and he found the horror scene that was there. He was first struck by the smell and then he saw the blood. He called for more officers and the coroner. The house was a mess. Ed didn't try to clean up. Clonel Kemper and her friend Sarah's bodies were found stuffed in the closet without their heads and their heads were found in the living room. And then they found his note. Big Ed really was the monster that they had been looking for for all this time. A cop in the area where Ed was, named Martinez, was the one to actually apprehend him. And he said that he was incredibly intimidated, but Ed was very cooperative. He stood there, allowed him to do the search, and he you know, made small talk with him. Ed was taken to some holding cells and taken by the police to his dump sites and apartment. He told police where they would find some body parts. There are still some to this day that have not been found, probably eaten by coyotes or whatever. And Ed just talked and talked to anybody that would listen. He admitted to everything, but he also just, you know, he sprinkled in a few lies here and there just to keep everyone on their toes. But he talked. He talked and talked. And if you watch his interviews, which you can do on YouTube, there's many he the way that he talks he believes he is smarter than everyone involved he speaks he's got such an annoying way of talking but anyway on the 30th of april 1973 ed was charged with eight counts of murder in the first degree on the 28th of may in 1934 no that's not right that's uh, my dyslexia on the 28th of May, 1973, he tried to commit suicide with a sharpened pen clip. He failed and was taken to hospital. On the 8th of November, 1973, Ed was convicted of eight counts of first-degree murder. He asked the judge to give him the death sentence, but the death penalty had been abolished the previous year to Ed's dismay. He was given eight concurrent seven-years-to-life sentences. 
1978, the death penalty was reinstated, but not backdated. Kemper is still locked up to this day, and his most recent parole hearing was in 2017, I believe, where he was denied parole. He is currently 74 years old and will die in prison. He has done voiceover work in prison for a few projects, which is kind of creepy. There are a couple of books that he has voiced over for, and he is said to be a model prisoner. And that's that. I'm not going to go into the trial. I'm not going to go into what the psychiatrist and the psychologist say because I don't have time to do that. If you guys want me to, I can because it's, it's very interesting. Like this guy's psychology and the way that he thought about things was very interesting. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to leave it at that. I, he, he constantly says that he hates himself for doing what he did. And his, his main focus was his mother. And once he had done that, he was done. There was no more object of his rage, object to his rage. So the way that he, he does things, it's very, it's interesting. He's a monster, obviously, but I think he's so messed up in the head. You know what I'm saying? That it's, I'd, I'd love to just be able to get inside his head to, to know what he was thinking. What, what makes you think that you have the right to take somebody's life? I mean, obviously... He obviously didn't see it that way, but it's just, it's fascinating. And I think that, you know, the whole nature versus nurture thing comes into play. Like, does his upbringing warrant the things that he did? And obviously nothing warrants the things that he did. But he, does his upbringing account for what made him into the monster that he is? Did, you know, lots of people get brought up in a much worse environment, but they don't end up killing people dismembering them and then raping their dead bodies so what what what's different about him that that sort of thing happened there must be a nature element to it maybe the mixture of genes from old clarnell and ed ed, ed emil jr were were just not a good match or could it have been the alcoholism in his, on his mother's side could it have been was he assaulted you know what happened and why did he have this paralyzing fear of speaking to women when I mean he was apparently incredibly easy to get along with he was apparently very easy to talk to so it's these kinds of things that I'm, I'm super interested in but yeah that's that's what I've got for you guys if you enjoyed learning about this please keep on listening and please follow me on my social media Facebook it is cup of taboo Instagram, it is at cupoftaboo underscore podcast. And if you want to send an email, it's cupoftaboo at gmail.com. I am sorry that I took such a long break in December and January. I tried to get things in order. I've decided I'm going to do a lot more interviews. So that's going to be fun. I actually have my first interview coming up next week about some interesting sex stuff. It's about uh, monogamy which is fun. So please keep sure to keep, please make sure to keep listening if you want to hear that. It is a lot of fun. And then after that, I'm also going to be talking to somebody else about, you know, dating apps and the nightmare that they are. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to focus more on that sort of stuff this year. And yeah, if you guys have any suggestions, I would really like to hear it. If you have anything that you want to speak about over an interview, let me know. I would be more than happy to have a chat with you. But yeah, I hope that you guys keep your ears open for that. And yeah, until then, stay hydrated, my lovelies, and I will chat soon. Bye!